0: Welcome, friends, to a history of the King James Bible Podcast. To find more episodes and information, just go to our website, www.ahistoryofthekingjamesbiblepodcast.com. Now here is GK with the latest episode.
1: Hello and welcome to a History of the King James Bible Podcast, Episode 8. In this episode, we're going to discuss the rules that were laid down for the new translation of the Bible, which from our perspective, was the major outcome of the Hampton Court Conference, which was covered in some detail in Episode 7. So let's get started. Let's now turn to the man who was put in charge of overseeing the translation of the new Bible. The man we've just heard a little bit about during the Hampton Court Conference episode, that's episode seven, Uh, that man is Richard Bancroft. Bancroft was a highly educated churchman, already well known when King James came to the throne in England. He was the Bishop of London at the time of the Hampton Court Conference, and also the Chief Spokesman for the Bishops during the Conference. Shortly after Hampton Court, he became the Archbishop of Canterbury the highest office in the Anglican Church. Like James, he too had little time for the Puritans and even less time for the Catholics. His initial reaction to the Puritan request for a new translation was to poo-poo the whole idea. But he soon changed his tune when James put him in charge of organising the new Bible, him along with a few other senior churchmen, deans and professors. James asked them to suggest the names of scholars fit for the task of making a new translation of the Bible. Now, we'll get to the scholars chosen for this work. And as I mentioned in my opening episode of this series, studying these scholars and their work is the reason I got interested in doing this whole series in the first place. So we're going to be spending some time... Uh, getting to know them real soon in upcoming episodes. But for now, let's take a look at the list of rules given to the translators by Bancroft. Bear in mind, these instructions were passed to the translators by Bancroft as if from the king himself, so they carry a lot of weight. Also note, as Nicholson points out in his book, God's Secretaries, and um see my references page on the website, for a list of books and articles used in this series, just go to www.ahistoryofthekingjamesbiblepodcast.com and go to the References tab at the top of the page. And there you'll find the list of books and articles, and uh, you can look for them yourself. Um, so Nicholson points out that these rules, with these rules, there's no room for inspiration here. These are rules to be followed with the greatest attention to be paid to the details. Now, I think this is a somewhat significant point and one to consider if you're of a mind to argue about the divine inspiration of the King James Version. Now, I'm not saying God wasn't involved in this translation. That's not what I'm saying. But Bancroft's rules are not for prophets who receive visions. These are rules for scholars under orders, if you take my meaning. And The final work was, and it's still not without its critics, one scholar who was passed over for selection as a translator wrote after its publication that the translators would have to give an account on the Day of Judgment for the hundreds of ill words he encountered within it. I just bet that went down like a stale scone when the translators heard that one. But we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here. Let's go to Bancroft's Rule number 1. Rule number 1. The ordinary Bible read in the church, commonly called the Bishop's Bible, to be followed, and as little altered as the truth of the original will permit. Now the Bishop's Bible was the official Bible of the time, and while not as good as the Geneva, it was what was used in the churches in that day, and we know what James thought of the Geneva. The Bishop's Bible was heavily Latinized, and it wasn't popular with the Puritans, with one of them having said he would prefer to read the Quran. Whoopsie, looks like we need a new translation. The king doesn't like the Geneva, and the Puritans don't like the bishops. The Bishop's Bible was written in a very lofty style. Perhaps well above the layperson is what I'm thinking. Actually, in some places it was even funny. For example, in Ecclesiastes 11 verse 1, the King James reads, Cast thy bread upon the waters. Whereas the Bishop's Bible has it as, Lay thy bread upon wet faces. Now, from our 21st century viewpoint, that one is definitely a what-were-they-smoking moment. Anyway, to be honest, I'm not clever enough to advise whether one should or shouldn't read the Bishop's Bible, and that's the truth. But as we'll see, the translators did have room to wiggle with this rule just a little bit in terms of other versions that they're allowed to use. We're going to see a bit about that uh, a bit further down the list here. And it's estimated that ultimately they used about 8% of the Bishop's Bible's phraseology. Phew. Thank goodness for that, or we might all be wandering around with wet brown on our faces if they didn't change that one. Moving on to rule number two. The names of the prophets and the holy writers, with the other names of the text, to be retained, as nigh as may be, accordingly as they were vulgarly used. Okay, now we're going to have some more fun with this one as well. I'm thinking with this one, we're again seeing some of James's anti-Geneva Bible bias. As we learned in a previous episode, the Geneva was full of annotations, which James detested. But the Geneva also contained a list of the names of the major characters and writers of the Bible, with a translation of the meaning of their names. So, for example, with Adam, we have Red Earth. This version and its list was so popular with the Puritans that there were children back in the day with names like The Lord is Near or More Fruit and even children called Reformation. One of the most popular among the Puritans was the name Deny." Uh, for my American listeners, you might be surprised to know that among the children who landed at Plymouth Rock were Fear, Love, Patience and Wrestling. All children of William Brewster. Now I'm wondering aloud here, so please don't quote me, but I'm thinking maybe this rule is here as part of the anti Geneva and anti Puritan mindset that was abroad among the hierarchy of the Anglican Church at the time and obviously um, with King James himself too. Another thing to ponder is why James in the New Testament is not translated Jacob. Now I'm thinking it may have something to do with the Latin, but I think Jacob makes more sense in English. Maybe this is something I might come back to at a later date. Now let's go to Bancroft's rule number three, the old ecclesiastical words to be kept, viz the word church not to be translated congregation, etc., Okay, so now here I'm going to defer to Nicholson's God's Secretaries. Again, see my references list on the website. Uh, you can track down most of the books if you have a mind to, some on a well-known bookseller's site or some out of print on a well-known auction site. Uh, there'll be a couple that aren't very easy to come by. Um, uh, for example, Opfels, the King James Bible Translators, is a bit scarce and uh, and it can be expensive to get. Um, But Nicholson's God's Secretaries is widely available. Okay, so let's have a look what Nicholson has to say about um, Bancroft's third rule. And I'll read that again. The old ecclesiastical words to be kept, viz. the word church, not to be translated, congregation, etc. Bancroft, and almost certainly the king was not prepared to give any ground in the language of the translation to the Presbyterians, who denied any scriptural authority to bishops, or separatists, who would in time call themselves independents and then Congregationalists. Now, if I remember rightly, one of our former Prime Ministers, um, former Prime Minister's father, was a former Congregationalist pastor back in the day when they still had the Congregationalist uh, churches. But then I think they all became part of the um, Uniting Church when they grouped together with the uh, Presbyterians and the Methodists. But um, that's just a bit of an aside there. Um, where were we? This was one of the oldest nubs of Bible translation. William Tyndale, in his great 1526 groundbreaking translation of the New Testament, had translated Ecclesia, not as church, but as congregation, and presbyteros, not as priest, but as senior, which he later changed under pressure from Thomas More to elder as being the more English word. The entire meaning of the Reformation hinges on these differences. A presbyter, an elder, has no ancient priestly significance. He is not the conduit of God's grace. He does not interfere with the direct relationship of each soul to God, nor, in Luther's famous phrase, with the priesthood of all believers. If presbyter is what the scripture says, what need is there of bishops and archbishops? And if ecclesia means not church, but congregation, what relevance to God can there be in the elaborate and expensive superstructure of an established church and the grotesque indulgences of its offices? Was the true meaning of the word Ecclesia not a reproach to the habits of even such a godly bishop as Thomas Morton, who when travelling by coach, had always some choice or useful book which he either read himself or else caused a chaplain, as his amanuensis, to read unto him who attended on his journeying? Did Ecclesia really mean old men riding about the countryside as comfortably as if in first class railway compartments, and monopolising the funds of the true church to do so? It was to avoid questions of that kind, redolent of the profound political and social subversiveness which lies within the Reformation, that the old words had to be kept. Hmm. That's something to think about, that one. I can see why they would want that, having a bit of an understanding of the political machinations at the time, but is that really what's best for a translation? Um... You may have noticed I try not to add too much commentary or, you know, opinion. And if I do, I'll definitely let you know. It's just opinion. But these sort of things are a bit concerning. All right. Okay. Enough of that. I'll let you consider that for yourself, which is what I prefer to do. Let's move on to um Bancroft's rule number four. When a word hath diverse significations that to be kept, which hath been most commonly used by the most of the ancient fathers, being agreeable to the propriety of the place and the analogy of the faith. Okay, so here again, I um, uh, defer to Nicholson because he's just so good at um, his review of these uh, rules. So here we go. The Church of England, like the Church of Rome, but unlike the more fully reformed churches of Europe, relied for its understanding of the often complex texts of Scripture on the ancient inherited traditions of Christianity. The statements and resolutions of the councils of the early church and the great body of patristic scholarship, in particular those church fathers, above all Jerome, St. John Chrysostom, Augustine and Origen, of whom 16th century English scholars, including several of the translators, had made a particular study. This instruction is part of that widespread Reformation phenomenon, the search for primitive authenticity, for avoiding all hint of dreaded innovation, looking for true meaning in the most ancient and hence the most reliable texts. This too is a mark of the modern, a historical consciousness and a sense that the world now has fallen away from the more perfect state in which it once existed. And I couldn't have said it better myself. So again, we see here the rules are for scholarship. In my mind, Bancroft, and by default, James is saying, don't try and get too fancy here, don't get too innovative. This is not about inspiration. Don't try and be a prophet. This is about following a well-known, well-worn path back as close to the originals as we can get and those confirmed by the ancient fathers as put here by Bancroft. But what do you think? Does this make sense? I'm liking it. But again, I really would like you to make up your own mind on on these things, but I'm liking it. Okay, let's move on. Um, uh, Number five, Bancroft's... Bancroft's rule number five. Uh, I don't think we'll spend long on this one. Okay, um, five. The division of the chapters to be altered either not at all or as little as may be if necessity so require. Okay, so I don't have a lot to say about this one other than to suggest that for me, the message seems to be that this new Bible mustn't stray too far from the previous English editions. And that's just my humble opinion. Um, number six, rule number six, this one's not going to come as a surprise, um, just get some more light here, um, no marginal notes at all to be affixed, but only for ye explanation of ye Hebrew or Greek words, which cannot without some circumlocation so briefly and fitly be expressed in ye text. Now, we discussed this point at some length in episode 7, so if you haven't yet heard that, it might be helpful as I covered it in some depth there. But suffice it to say that this is partly about James's disdain for the Geneva Bible, but there's something else going on here. Something that makes the King James Version such an important document in the history of the English language. Let me once again read from Nicholson's God's Secretaries. The kind of notes with which the Geneva Bible was littered, so violently disliked by James, were not to be admitted. But the crucial point is this. There were to be no marginal notes at all, not even those which might conform to the ideology of the established Jacobean Church. The text, as all good Protestants might require, was to be presented clean and sufficient of itself except where the actual words of the original were so opaque that a circumlocation might not explain them within the text. Circumlocation did not mean then quite what it means now. Thomas Wilson in The Art of Rhetoric, published in 1553 and in use throughout the 16th century, had described circumlocation as a large description either to set forth a thing more gorgeously or else to hide it. The words of this translation, then, could embrace both gorgeousness and ambiguity, did not have to settle into a single doctrinal mode, but could embrace different meanings, either within the text itself or in the margins. This is the heart of the new Bible as an erenicon, an organism that absorbed and integrated difference, that included ambiguity, and by doing so established peace. There it is again, peace. If you listen to nearly every episode, I'll point out how important it is for James to uh, seek peace and um, peace and unity. I've seen it argued that some of the stuff that he did further down the track, in fact, caused the opposite. But uh, I think the evidence shows that during his reign, that this is, you know, essentially the the fact that there was more peace and unity than there was beforehand or afterwards but um i'm sort of going over old ground there um it is the central mechanism of the translation one of immense lexical subtlety a deliberate carrying of multiple meanings beneath the surface beneath the surface of a single text This single rule lies behind the feeling which the King James Bible has always given its readers, that the words are somehow extraordinarily freighted with a richness which few other texts have ever equaled. Again and again, the Jacobean translators chose a word not for its clarified straightforwardness, which had been Tyndale's focus in the 1520s and 30s, and the Geneva Calvinists, in the 1550s, but for its richness, its suggestiveness, its harmonic resonances. That is the heart of the irenicon, Divergence held within a singularity. James's Arcadian vision made word. So there was a lot there, um, and I'm not saying I understand it all, but I think it highlights what I said at the beginning of that point. This is one of the things that makes the King James Bible such a big deal in the um, progression of the English language, especially its written form. Um, Let's move on to Bancroft's rule number seven. Such quotations of places to be marginally set down as shall serve for fit reference of one scripture to another. Okay, so again, let's go to Nicholson. Uh, to help us with an understanding of this rule. Nicholson says, The Bible was to be seen, importantly, as one text. The Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament were a foretelling and a foreshadowing of the New. Each had their part, as James told his son, Prince Henry. The whole scripture is dictated by God's Spirit to instruct and rule the whole church militant to the end of the world. It is composed of two parts, the Old and New Testament. The ground of the former is the law, which showeth our sin, and containeth justice. The ground of the other is Christ, who, pardoning sin, containeth grace. Any edition of the Bible, relying on the voluminous commentaries of the early Christian fathers, needed to sew these parts together, grace was to be seen in the light of justice, and vice versa. I think Nicholson absolutely nails it right there. I think that's wonderful. Let's now go to Bankoff's Rule number 8. Each particular man of each company to take the same chapter or chapters, and having translated or amended them severally by himself, where he thinketh good, all to meet together, confer what they have done, and agree for their parts what shall stand. Um, now we will eventually get to how the translated translators were divided into companies and what section each were responsible for. And I will get to some further mechanics of the King James Bible in upcoming episodes where I'll discuss not just the process, but also the outcome so that we, um, uh, so we've got that to look forward to. But for now, Rule 8, the translators are told they must work on their own allotted portions of the scripture without conferring with the others. And only when they were done were they to come together and decide if the individual had completed his task uh, as according to the rules and properly. So then, you know, they'd uh, go over each other's work and discuss uh, what was to remain or what was to change. But as I say, we will go into that in far more depth in upcoming episodes. Okay, I'd just like to take this opportunity to remind you that every episode of A History of the King James Bible Podcast is available for free uh, download at the website. Um, everything's for free. I've got nothing for sale. All I ask is that you share the series with your friends. Uh, share it around. Help us promote it a little bit that way. Um, and to those people who have written to me um, over the last couple of episodes thank you very much for your encouragement I note that a couple of you have written to me more than once, thank you very much uh, God bless, I really really appreciate that um, if you haven't taken the time to write yet uh, drop us a line and let us know what you think of the series ok, so we will be back with more of Bancroft's Rules right after this short break
0: You're listening to a History of the King James Bible Podcast with GK the series is now available on iTunes. Just go to iTunes and search for A History of the King James Bible podcast with GK Flint as the author. If you enjoy the series, please leave a rating and a review. You can also find links to every episode at our website. Just head to www.ahistoryofthekingjamesbiblepodcast.com. Now let's get back to this episode with your host,
1: GK. Yes, and thanks very much to Mike there for the introduction and the help with the voiceovers. Okay, so now let's go to Bancroft's rule number nine. As any one company hath dispatched any one book in this manner, they shall send it to the rest, to be considered of seriously and judiciously, for His Majesty is very careful in this point. Okay, so if you've been listening closely, paying attention to these rules, you'll note that this is the first time that the king himself is mentioned within the rules. His Majesty is very careful of this point. Why? As I've said a couple of times earlier, we will look closely at the division of companies and who was in each, but at this point, I'll tell you that there were to be six companies of men, two each from Westminster, Cambridge and Oxford. So back to the question... Why is this rule so important? Well, it seems that the Westminster companies were to be led by men loyal to the Crown. But James New Cambridge had some years earlier been the hotbed of Presbyterianism, and one of the masters from one of its colleges was set to be on this committee. And what of the Oxford crew? Well, none other than John Reynolds would be part of that team. Remember him from the Hampton Court Conference? He'd been one of the poor Puritans who were on their knees before the king while he rang them. So go back to episode 7 for more on that. And now we see why this one is so important. The king and Bancroft are intent on keeping a lid on any Puritan tendencies that might come through the translation, because the Westminster Company is going to be well stacked with the king's men, and each company's work is to be reviewed by the other. So this way he can keep control and keep a lid on um, on the Puritans by having those in the other um, companies review their work. And um, those of the Westminster Company are going to be some of the finest minds and translators of the time. But again, uh, we will get to that in future episodes. Okay, so now to Bancroft's Rule 10. Rule 10. If any company, upon the review of the book so sent, doubt or differ upon any place, to send them word thereof. Note the place, and withal send the reasons, to which if they consent not, the difference to be compounded at the general meeting, which is to be of the chief persons of each company at the end of the work. Okay, so this is another level of quality control. Um, I think there were to be Maybe, I think it's four or five reviews from start to finish. Um, so you can see that careful attention was to be paid to the final outcome. Um, very careful attention is paid, uh, to each person's work, each company's work, and, um, and, um, so that they can be sure of the final product. Okay. Rules 11 and 12 are more levels of quality control. So I'll just read those. Rule 11. When any place of special obscurity is doubted of letters to be directed by authority to send to any learned man in the land for his judgment of such a place. So this is pretty cool. Um, so if there's some doubt, it can be sent to um, any learned man in the land uh, for their assistance in helping with the translation. So I think that's pretty cool. Rule 12. Now, this one's also pretty interesting. Letters be sent from every bishop to the rest of his clergy admonishing them of this translation in hand and to move and charge as many as being skillful in the tongues and having taken pains in that kind to send his particular observations to the company either at Westminster, Cambridge or Oxford. So this is for the bishops to send out to those educated men that they know of who are uh, skilled in the ancient languages um, for assistance. Now, rule 13 is a simple one. It just lays down what office holders are to lead the company. So I'll just read that. Rule 13, the directors in each company to be the deans of Westminster and Chester for that place, and the king's professors in the Hebrew or Greek in either university. Okay, so that shows who's going to lead the companies, um, their specific office bearers uh, who will be in charge of each of the six companies. Now to Rule 14. Now with Rule 14, we have to keep Rule 1 in mind. So let me read Rule 1 for you first, and then we will read Rule 14 and discuss it. Rule 1. The ordinary Bible read in a church, commonly called the Bishop's Bible, to be followed, and as little altered as the truth of the original will permit. Okay, so think about that as as I read Rule 14. These translations to be used when they agree better with the text than the Bishop's Bible. Tyndall's, Matthew's, Coverdale's, Whitchurch's, Geneva. Okay, so this is a list of the Reformation Bibles that the translators can use, and I would argue a rather inclusive list knowing how much James disliked the Geneva, um, because it's there. Um, it demonstrates the English Church's recognition and respect for the versions that came before this new endeavor. I'd also point that out. Um, now, of interest is uh, there was another Bible in English that's missing from this list, the Dewey Rims Bible, um, which is the Catholic translation of the Latin Vulgate into English. Um, now it was published to uphold the Catholic tradition over against the Reformation and I'm sure the publication of so many Protestant Bibles I'm sure that's why they bought that b- version out in English um, but that's obviously missing from this list because uh, this is an Anglican church with control here and we don't want to have the Catholic input into the new Bible. Okay let's go to our final rule here rule 15. Besides the said directors before mentioned, three or four of the most ancient and grave divines in either of the universities, not employed in translating, to be assigned by the vice-chancellor upon conference with the rest of the heads, to be overseers of the translations, as well Hebrew as Greek, for the better observation of the fourth rule above specified. Now, um, Nicholson um, makes reference to the... Septuagint with this rule. He comments about the use of the authors of the New Testament, um, where, wherever the, um, Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament, um, for the most part, it's not out of the Hebrew, it's out of the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And some people argue that there are issues with the Septuagint, but I've seen it somewhere that's somewhere between uh, 40 to 70% of the Old Testament quotations that are used in the New Testament come directly out of the Septuagint. So that's the Greek version of the Old Testament. But um, uh, Nicholson's saying that he believes this one's in here um, for something to do with the Septuagint, but I'm not sure. I'm not 100% sure about that. Um, so we'll have to leave that there where it is for now. Okay, so that's the list of rules as written up by Bancroft and approved by King James. Our next episode will be the first of our Meet Your Friendly Bible Translator episodes. Um, So look forward to that. One last thing before I go, I've received a couple of questions about the music I use in my podcasts. Our theme music for both Like Flint Radio and A History of the King James Bible Podcast are both by the band Acrolith. You can find a link to their website in the Thanks section of the website. I don't do this on every episode, but here now for your listening pleasure is the full version of Words of Wisdom by Acrolith. So until next time, God bless and hooroo.